The first point that we looked at at our last seminar was don't despise the opportunities that unmarried ministry gives you. Secondly, recognize God's timing for courtship. The one who acts hastily makes poor choices, Proverbs 19, too. Um, first, that means sufficient age. And as a general rule of thumb, what is sufficient age for uh, courtship and marriage? A good age. You're here. According to this, to this scripture, it would be 20 or above. By this time, the direction of life can be more easily determined. The character patterns are fixed. The future is more predictable because there's been a past. You have a better feel for what the person will be like at 40. It's like a credit history. Um, you can't borrow money unless you have a credit history. They want to know what your credit history is. Now God has given in the Bible three ways to predict the future. And uh, that's a whole lecture in itself, but let me just uh, summarize it. The past is a predictor of the future. That which hath been will be again, the scripture says. The best predictor is the past. That's why if you apply to school, what do they ask to see? Your transcripts. Why? It's not perfect, but it's an indicator of what the future is. And so you want to have uh, uh, the sufficient life experience that you can investigate, that you can have some sort of means of, uh, of projecting. We won't look at the other two uh, ways to predict the future, but uh, just that one. And then sufficient experience to run and maintain an organized home. That's what you want um, uh, in a spouse or, or uh, to be able to do. Sufficient experience to have a job and a financial base to sustain a family. Now, what if you are old enough and sufficiently experienced enough? What lack I yet? I uh, often meet singles with lists of requirements for a prospective mate. And I'm always interested in these uh, lists. So I would like you at this time to write down uh, your list, make it in four sections, what you want in a future mate, those that are absolutely essential, uh, you can't live without, those that are desirable, it'd be nice, but you'd consider someone without one or more of these requirements. And then third, what is your list of undesirable attributes? You'd consider someone, but you wouldn't like it. And what's your list of absolute deal breakers? I will not under any circumstances um, live with this category. We're going to give you one minute. I hear a buzz. What is your list? Absolutely essential, desirable, undesirable deal breaker. And many, for most people, these would be the reverse of these, but not necessarily. All right. You got that list? Ten more seconds. All right, the next question is, have you made up a list of requirements for yourself? Would it be the same? Do you bring to the marriage the qualities you feel are absolutely essential in a life's partner? And what about the deal breakers? Do you have any of these qualities yourself? Our first concern in a seminar like this should not be, what do I get? But what do I bring to a marriage? A courtship seminar is really not about getting the person you want, but becoming the person you need to be. 
Before we seek a life's partner, we must evaluate what type of life's partner we would be. Do you understand the responsibilities involved in marriage and parenting? 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves. Do you really know yourself? Is your assessment accurate? If you wrote down your description of yourself, would it agree with the description that heaven would make of you? Or your parents? Or your teachers? For I say to every man not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. How do we examine ourselves in preparation for marriage? Marriage is a test of love, and so we must examine our ability to love and our love. Do we have genuine love or do we not? The Beatles had a hit song, All You Need Is Love. When I was a teenager, you heard it blaring everywhere. It was a way of telling a lie by telling the truth. It is true all you need is love, but... What is true love? Have we learned to love? Have we received this gift from God? How can we know if we have the genuine love or not? Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we are going to be looking at a very serious study that will be saying some things that we all know, but a few things that are surprising. And dear Lord, we want you to be the teacher. Only you have the wisdom to talk about love because you're the source of it. Only you have the proper way to reach our hearts. Father, you be the one that instructs each of us because we all here need to learn about this. I need to learn about it. And I want to learn from you. And now we commit this portion of the seminar into your hands. In Christ's name, amen. We begin our self-examination by reviewing our past, comparing our past with the standard of love, the Ten Commandments. When we love, we have fulfilled every requirement of the law. The first commandment that explicitly instructs us on our home duties is in the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. The highest duty that devolves upon youth is where? In our own homes. Blessing father and mother, brothers and sisters, by affection and true interest. Before you become a physician, you have to go to what? Medical school. Before you become a nurse, you have to go to nursing school. Before you get married, you must go to marriage school. And marriage school is your home. Your home. Your childhood home is the school God designed should prepare you for your own home. Did you have difficulties in your home? God wants you through those difficulties to be prepared to be a much better homemaker than perhaps you came from. It's the lab to learn love. If you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, we mentioned this in the last uh, seminar, who shall give you that which is your own? We're going to study this further in our next lecture this afternoon on the ingredients of happiness. There are absolutely essentials to be happy. And we want to look at those. You need to know these ten ingredients for happiness. So thoughtfully review how you have been as a family member in your own home. How were you as a son a daughter, a brother, or a sister. And then, carefully compare your life with Christ as the, the example. In the case of the fifth commandment, we look at Christ and how he treated his mother. He's dying on the cross. And he, he's suffering tremendously, but he had such a habit of caring for his mother that he forgot his own suffering in thinking of hers. He must have sent her notes, given her little attentions and gifts. Mary must have thought, if only every one of my children were like Jesus. And then, compare your past life with Christ's life. 
This is how you review your, light, your life in the light of God's word as uh, Messages to Young People 433 instructs us. Have you treated with kindness and love the mother who has cared for you for, from infancy? And are you treating her with kindness and love now? When was the last time you sent her a note? Gave her a call on the phone. Got her a gift. Is he, she happier because you're around? Or um, is it a relief when you leave? Do you ignore her for your friends? Before making your plans, do you consider her wishes? Do you argue with her over your hairstyle, music, clothes, choice of friends, in every way consistent with God's word, do you try to please her? Are you like Jesus? Have you caused her pain and brought her sorrow by doing your own thing? These are serious questions that cover serious sins. Deuteronomy 21.18 states that a disobedient and rebellious son needs to be stoned to death. These questions must be considered before anybody thinks about courtship and dating. And this is a quotation from an article on preparing for marriage that we've looked over here and I've just outlined uh, these questions, messages to young people. I begin to look over my life in medical school and I realized that I had not been the brother I should have been. My sister is a tremendous person. And when I came home from the hospital, I don't remember this very well, but uh, after I was born, uh, she took, she was two and a half years old, and she took her most precious possession, which was her blue blanket that she called her Boobanky. And she gave her Boobanky to the new baby. Her, what she had not parted with, she gave to me. And I didn't treat her very well in return. And I was the younger um, brother, and I teased her, and I did lots of things that I should not have done as a brother. And I began to think about this in medical school. And uh, I remembered several things that I did that were really mean and cruel to her. And I thought, I need to make it right. So I called her up. Um, and I thought, probably she has forgotten these. I was hopeful she was. She had. But she didn't. She had remembered them. They weren't mean. <laughs> but she forgave me. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. And there are things that maybe some of you as you review your life, you think of that you need to call parents or siblings and make right. A happy marriage is built on genuine love. Shallow affection and fondness can be created by feelings, but genuine love is supernatural and it comes from God. Only those who have received this love should ever consider marriage. How do we know if this genuine love for God encompasses our entire life and being? Our love is not revealed by merely saying, I love God. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed in truth, John said. Our love is revealed by several things. First of all, our priorities. We show our priorities by how we spend our time and our money. We say we love the Bible, but do we choose spending time on the Internet over our time with God's Word? Some choose sleep instead of church. They can get to work on time, but they can't seem to make it to Sabbath school. Some choose television instead of prayer meeting. Is God our priority? Closely allied to priority is commitment. Ours is a generation that absolutely hates commitment. They don't commit to anything. In politics, they're independent. In beliefs, they're agnostic. In church membership, they're non-denominational. In church attendance, they go if the program sounds interesting. If there's a better program in another church, they go there. If it's a nice day and it's Loma Linda, you go to the mountains or the beach instead of church. You do what's convenient. But in relationships, they don't marry. 
They just live together. But commitment is commitment. Whether it's easy, hard, pleasant, or unpleasant, and are you committed to God? If you're not committed to God, you will not be committed to another person. Have I gone beyond a mere affection for God to a full and complete surrender to his directions? It says of Judas, Judas loved the great teacher. You see, you need more than love for God to be saved. Judas loved Jesus and desired to be with him. He felt a desire to be changed in character and life, and he hoped to experience this through connecting himself with Jesus. But Judas did not come to the point of surrendering himself. What does the next three words? Fully to God. There was no commitment. There was no self-denial. There was no yielding to God rather than following desire. Judas desired, he hoped, but he did not commit. Do I really, really understand love? Few do. It involves priority. It involves commitment. Love is a sentiment so sacred that but few know what it is. It is a term used, but not understood. A sentiment is a, a thought, an idea, or opinion based on a feeling or emotion. There's a lot of talk about love. People in love are the first to get questioned in a murderer. The, pol the police in the worst shooting spree in the United States history neglected the real killer for two hours. Do you know why? They were interviewing and questioning the girl's boyfriend, Carl Thornhill. We are a long, long way from love and understanding it when people supposedly in love are the first suspects, the first to be questioned in a murder. The warm glow of impulse, the fascination of one young person for another is not love. It does not deserve the name. True love has an intellectual basis, a deep, thorough knowledge of the object loved. We take more thought in determining whether our clothes fit us and add to us than we do our life's partner. People take more care in choosing their business partners than they do their life's partner because the brain is turned off. But true love has what kind of basis? An, a thought basis. Thought basis. You cannot love without knowing a person well, and that takes some time. This catching up with objects and bestowing on them the thoughts and affections is without reason, without judgment, and is excessive, temporary, and central. If you want something more than temporary, you want real love. Do I really understand love? Few do. Few do. Have I received God's love for others? It's easy to talk about it. Popular songs are about love. Popular religion is about love. And even Satan loves love. He enlists the affections by his eloquent portrayals of love and charity. It's his favorite topic. That's popular love. The typical meaning of the statement there in love, the romantic love that dies when tested. So we want to test for genuine love before we're married. In a chemistry lab, we run tests to determine the purity of a substance. In the lab of life, we test for the purity of genuine love. In uh, medicine, from time to time, we discover a test that we think is really terrific, and then over time, we discover it's not that good. How do we know what love is? The first test that is not a test, do we love those who love us? Those who recognize us, say nice things about us, do nice things for us, do what we want. Second, are we polite to those of our own group but we don't love outside of our cliquish circle? These are not love and well known. Do we cater to the rich, famous, and great, but ignore the poor's necessities of life? These are not useful tests. 
In the lab of lice, we test for the purity of love with a four-part test. The first three are well known, nothing new here, and we'll go over them real quickly. But the fourth is counterintuitive. The first one is, do we love our enemies? Do we bless those that curse us? Do good to those that hate us? Secondly, do we love those who reprove us and welcome their reproof? Thirdly, do we reach out and help the unfortunate and poor around us? But now I would like you to look at the last and somewhat unexpected test of love because, as I said before, this is counterintuitive. Are we very careful in choosing only God-fearing friends, shunning friendships with those who do not fear the Lord? Do not I hate them, O Lord, David said, who hate thee? Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? Verse 22 goes on to say, Yea, I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Psalm 15, 4. In whose eyes? Uh, Jehu, I should say, 2 Chronicles 19, 2. Jehu, the son of Hananiah the seer, shouldest, uh, said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Psalm 15, 4. In whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. James 4.4, 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You see, we show the genuineness of our love for others by whom we attempt to help, which is all, by whom we choose as our friends and companions, which is the godly. Great care should be taken by Christian youth. Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 500. Great care should be taken in the formation of friendships and in the choice of companions. Take heed, lest what you now think to be pure gold turns out to be base metal. Only he that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. The angels of heaven who fell, and the angels of heaven who remained firm. Do you know what was the difference? Who their friends remained. Who were their cherished associates? And who they rejected as friends and associates. Whom we choose as friends will almost certainly determine who we marry. A spouse is generally either one of our friends, like our friends, or suggested by our friends. Jacob's sons, Judah, committed adultery with the assistance of Hira, a local Canaanite friend. Jacob's daughter, Dinah, became involved in fornication because of her local Canaanite friends. Samson, one of the judges of Israel, chose the wrong wife with the help of a Philistine friend who later double-crossed him. David's son, Amnon, learned how to rape his sister with a Jewish friend and relative. Joseph could have been in this hall of shame But his refusal to associate with evil companions protected. Though Potiphar's wife spoke to Joseph day by day, and I'm quoting from Scripture, he hearkened not unto her to be with her. No wonder we're instructed, let all who would form a right character choose associates who are of a serious, thoughtful turn of mind and who are religiously inclined. But just because... People make a profession of religion does not mean they are safe associates. Jesus warned us to beware of wolves and sheep's skins. The vileness of the human heart is not understood. There are those that are not open sinners. They hide their sins from human eyes. They have a fair outward morality. Just because a person is a Seventh-day Adventist Christian does not mean it's a safe person for you to marry. There are persons who have for some time made a profession of religion who are to all intents and purposes without God and without a sensitive conscience. But notice, these very ones carry a pretense of piety. They offer prayers, bear testimony in meetings, and are apparently serving the Lord. They deserve an Emmy Award for acting, pretending to be Christians when they are not. Their hearts are corrupt. Their conduct is condemned 
by the law of Jehovah, which they profess to keep. Now, how do we differentiate the sheep from disguised wolves? We are all fooled sometimes. Uh, just this last week, we found that some of the smartest, wealthiest people got fooled by the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. $50 billion lost. Um, but when it comes to a potential marriage partner, ladies and gentlemen, you must not be fooled. There are a variety of ways to de detect counterfeit Christianity, but this takes time. Judas was able to disguise himself for a number of years. But notice some very accurate clues. The wolves are vain and trifling. Their conversation is of a low order. Courtship and marriage occupy the mind to the exclusion of higher and nobler thoughts. Who's dating this? Who's dating that? Um, their disguise can be detected by their vanity. They are proud of their own small accomplishments. Petty things, trifling attainments. They talk about themselves. They dress to draw attention to themselves. They're trifling. Act or talk without seriousness or dignity. To act or talk with levity. To indulge in light or trivial amusement. Low order of conversation. They think and talk, as we say. Nothing more then. Who's dating who? Now, unfortunately, we're naturally attracted to wolves. There is an inclination with the youth to associate with those who are inferior in mind and morals. And this inclination cannot be resisted except by the power of God. Our natural tendencies, unless corrected by the Holy Spirit, have in them the seeds of moral death. Unless we become vitally connected with God, we cannot resist the unhallowed effects of self-indulgence, self-love, and temptation to sin. That's why every day we have to fall on our knees and say, Dear God, keep me for today. And if we indulge this tendency, we become unhappy. What real happiness can a young person expect from a voluntary connection with persons who have a low standard of thoughts, feelings, and deportment? Since God desires our happiness, he warns us of the danger of following our hearts in the choice of companions. Because of this danger, it's important to seek and accept the biblical counsel regarding all friendships. Now, we're not going to have time to cover it, but it's completely covered in the syllabus. Uh, we won't um, give that uh, study. Now, in this we would be remiss if we didn't mention the media associates you form. You see, we not only make friends with those around us, but who we also choose as companions um, in the books we read, the videos we watch, the music we listen to, television. The media profoundly is our friend and influences us. Uh, the following refers specifically to books. The principle applies to all of the world's media, outnumbering all other productions of the press, like the swarms of locusts that darkened the whole land, comes the flood of novels and romances to cultivate in the youth, a lovesick sentimentalism to teach them that courtship and marriage are the great object of their existence and to unfit them for the practical duties of a useful life. It's interesting. I watched, and other physicians uh, in, in this audience can, can uh, attest to this, I saw certain kinds of diseases, and I almost always knew that if I admitted these people to the hospital, what books they'd be bringing with them. And you'd always see some novel, and uh, I mean, just, just in, in, inevitable. Some uh, courtship love story. Now, it's important for us to recognize that loneliness may be a necessary part in our preparation for marriage. Just as God allowed Adam, as we mentioned last time, to spend a period of time alone to be more grateful for Eve, God may see that we need a similar experience. When I came to Loma Linda, it was the first time in my life that I was ever lonely. Never had happened before. And I didn't know anybody. And... Uh, and it was at that time, when you're lonely, that you're particularly susceptible to certain temptations. And so the Lord, to protect me, gave me uh, a quotation 
which is found in Our High Calling, page 64, but I'm giving you the original because she wrote it to her 19-year-old son, Willie, when he went away from home for the first time and was at school. And she said this to her son. She said, your feelings of unrest and homesickness or loneliness, read it with me, may be for what? Your what? Your good. Your heavenly Father means to teach you to find in Him the friendship and love and consolation that will satisfy your most earnest hopes and desires. You see, many young people are looking to human parents or human friendships to fulfill the deepest needs that only God can fulfill. Humans, God may let disappoint us. He may remove human support so that we can turn our eyes on Him alone. And be aware of the good associates that God has made available to all. God knows our needs. He declared it is not good for man to be alone. He has provided for our companionship through the Word of God, with the Word of God in His hands. Every human being, wherever his lot in life may be cast, may have such companionship as he shall choose. In its pages he may hold converse with the noblest and best of the human race and may listen to the voice of the Eternal as he speaks with men. And of course we can have the best friend of all, the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Though we have rejected him, he does not reject us. He walked the wine press alone that we may walk with him daily. And the Bible records stories of many through the centuries who were God's friends. There was Enoch and Abraham and Moses. And he wants to add my name to that friend list. My friend of Phil. In heaven, don't you want to be introduced as you're with Christ walking? Oh, this is my friend Sue. Friendship requires a response. It's never one way. The mass murderer of Virginia Tech refused to let others be his friend. He refused to respond when they tried to be friendly. He turned away. He ignored all attempts at friendly reaching out. And if we turn from heaven's friendships, we are in danger of being mass murderers. Committing suicide in the end, we destroy ourselves. And when Christ is our primary friend, he introduces us to his friends. Can you imagine how excited the angels must have been to introduce Mary to Joseph? It was a match made in heaven. And that's what God wants your matches to be. Made in heaven. And if you are looking to others what only God can supply, you will never, ever be satisfied. One of the reasons why I was impressed with Sherry, my future wife at that time, my present wife, my first wife, my only wife, my current wife, uh, my favorite wife. Um, one of the things that impressed me was she was perfectly content to be single. I was looking for that. Because I knew that unless somebody... Jesus filled their life and they were content as they were. I could never fill the need that only he could fill. Then it'd have to be uh, possessions or it'd have to be children or it'd have to be something else continually reaching out, dissatisfied, discontented because Jesus isn't all and in all. How does... God introduces to his friends through our soul-winning efforts. Make it your studied goal in college to win as many colleagues to Christ as possible. Pray every day to be alert to opportunities to help others. I worked for three and a half years. I was very fortunate to work with um, a great dermatologist and a great man, Dr. John Chung. And I watched how the smartest person I have ever met, and I've met some really smart people, but the most gifted person I have ever been around was also one of the most humble. 
He was uh, always putting others first. He would offer a chair. He was uh, opening doors. He was cleaning up. It was unbelievable. It was a real uh, help to watch somebody like Jesus in those ways. Um, And in classes, watch for opportunities to be helpful to others and to your professors. At meals, look for ways to become acquainted and friendly with others. Seek to learn about them, their goals, their interests, their difficulties. Learn the art of asking questions. The easiest way to learn about people is in group activities. I'm not talking about group icebreakers, one-time groups that meet and then disband. I'm talking about long-term group formation and activities. Now here I'm going to be talking specifically to college-age students. It can be for older, but people who are in a college uh, or collegiate atmosphere. My advice is to get involved with group soul winning opportunities. They may involve singing bands, Bible marking, full-scale evangelism, Sabbath school. When I was in college, we started a Friday evening Bible study group. We conducted a Sabbath afternoon children's uh, story hour in the neighborhood filled with children. We organized community health education programs in the the summer. We did all kinds of things and it's uh, amazing all the activities that you can do as a young person. Choose a name to call your group. This gives you identity. Work under the authority of the school of the church. I encouraged my daughter when she went to Loma Linda not to be um, just a, uh, uh, an observer, but to be committed to some group. And so she was involved with the very start of, or near the start of Advent Home, she and, uh, and Eric. And uh, they were committed to that. That's what uh, we're talking about um, here. Uh, in the four years that they were at Loma Linda, it grew from 12 to 15 to, uh, I think it's probably 250 now. Can somebody tell me? 250, 275? Um, and be determined and committed, not just convenient. Um, Warren Buffett, when he's investing, he doesn't just hope and guess. He doesn't spin the, ice, the, the dice. And in courtship and marriage, don't just hope and guess. Don't just spin the dice. What I'm about to say is some crucial and secret information, and I'm going to to give it away. Some of you are already doing it, but I'm going to give away some key secrets. Um, Some are doing it and don't realize what they are doing, but this is important. Keep your eyes open and your mouth shut. Don't breathe a word about what you're doing. Seek to uncover the strengths in the people that are around you. Observe those who are faithful. Note those who take responsibilities. Um, Don't miss those who see what to do and do it. There are good signs in these. Become better acquainted with those who are studying the Bible and have a genuine prayer life. Watch those who are always thoughtful to pick up their plates from the cafeteria instead of letting others pick them up. Um, When you go into a meeting, watch those who will look for somebody who is sitting by themselves and sit down by them. Watch how different young people interact. Watch for those who are teachable. Be very guarded with those who are independent and do not work well under authority. Note those who are upbeat and positive when it is difficult, uh, and they're uncomplaining when there is an unexpected load. I think of Mark Finley. Um, He was an associate pastor when my dad was pastor in Hartford. And uh, one day I was, uh, I must have been, uh, I was a uh, teenager, and we were going in-gathering. Most of you don't even know what in-gathering is here. But... Um, I grew up, we'd uh, do in-gathering, and, uh, and, and uh, I didn't like to do it. And so I was bellyaching about having to do this and having to do that, and Mark was just full of smiles despite my 
complaints. Going forward, and I am sure he didn't want to do it any more than I did. Note those who are uncomplaining when there's an unexpected load. You'll be happy for those who are not sensitive and touchy. Learn to appreciate those who are contented and happy whatever their present situation. Those well-adjusted young people who are not restless, unable to just wait until they find a boyfriend or girlfriend. Note those who stay around and clean up and those who are early to set up. Observe those who are courteous and thoughtful. Listen to conversations. See who's supportive, who's critical. Notice those in the group who know how to economize without being austere. Observe those who have spiritual insights on appropriate recreation for a group, those who are not just trying to get entertainment in. And don't overlook the meals the group eats. You'll find some concerned about health. There will be those who are careful with their diets, when and what they eat. They may know how to cook, not just buy fast food. Note those who are always tidy and modest in their clothes style. Watch for those who are seeking to please the Lord in their dress instead of seeking to draw attention to themselves. Those who seek to meet the Bible standard and are not cringing slaves to the fashion police. Find out those who are not argumentative about their convictions. They just quietly live them. They are not obnoxious. You'll see these with meekness, not domineering and demanding as leaders. Become a student of human nature. You'll be developing a valuable lifetime skill. People shout out what they really like if you just watch them, observe them. My dad was probably the greatest genius that I know of in observing people. Serving people. Trained Mark Finley. Trained Russell Burrow. Trained Gary Gibbs. Um, he saw real potential. And that's what you want. Um, develop, you'll also be developing valuable lifetime friends. And in time, you may find that you work particularly well with someone in this outstanding and select group of quality young people. You get better acquainted. That's not the only way, of course. Um, you may be in a situation because of work, age, or location where you have limited group contact. God can and will guide you. Um, there was uh, a camel train that went uh, to Mesopotamia and found Rebecca. Um, I don't know when the camel train will come for you. But don't be in a rush during courtship. This question of marriage should be a study instead of a matter of impulse, says Ellen White. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. Do you desire to genuinely love your neighbor as yourself? Are you aware of your natural tendency to choose evil associates and will you accept counsel from godly parents regarding appropriate companions? Are you willing to limit your chosen associates to the godly and avoid all evil associates, even if that apparently seems to mean a lonely life? Are you willing to be very selective in the books you read, radio programs you hear, music you listen to, and television, movie, and video programs you watch, choosing only that which will honor God? Do you desire Jesus to be your closest friend and constant companion? I was running a couple years ago out for my exercise. And when I run, I, uh, I take my iPod, and I now have on my iPod six translations of the Bible and 50 books of the Spirit of Prophecy. It's just wonderful, life-changing. And so I was listening through Acts, the book of Acts, while I was running, and and suddenly, the angels called my attention to a verse that I was here, that, that, that I listened to. It was talking about exercise. And so I slowed down slightly because um, I wanted to have a little extra oxygen so I could think about what God had just talked to me. And this was the verse. 
It was Acts 24.16, and herein Paul was saying to his, his uh, judge, Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. He was exercising himself, not just out jogging like a, a gerbil, but he was exercising to have a conscience void of offense. And I said, Lord, that is the exercise that I want to have. Um, and then it says, void of offense toward God. Well, I'd always thought about avoiding uh, offense toward man. Um, I tried uh, during the uh, day, if I'd done something wrong, to make it right at our home. Um, when I've wronged family members or others, I've, I've always wanted to have a, void, a conscience void of offense toward man, but I never thought about a conscience void of offense toward God before. How can I have a conscience void of offense toward God? And as I begin to continue um, running, I realized that there were six areas that I could offend God. I can only mention three of them, the three most important. The first way that I can offend God is my past sins. Um, I have forgotten those sins. Usually my, uh, I have a memory that's uh, uh, newly coated with Teflon. Um, and since I've forgotten what's in the past, uh, does God forget? No. He still cares. It's still injuring me, what I've done. Still being reproved, uh, reproduced in others. And so I asked God while I was running, Dear God, please forgive me for the sins of the past. And if I confess my sins, what is he faithful and just to do? Forgive them. I'm thankful. But as I was thinking about it, not only do I have offensive past sins, I also have present socially acceptable sins. You know, there are things that we do that everybody says that's okay. It doesn't matter. In the time of Jeroboam, it was the golden calf, that northern Israel couldn't ever get away from that acceptable sin. It was socially acceptable. In fact, it was even socially pushed. It would have been unacceptable against that sin. But that is offensive to God. Luke 16, 15, He said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. And so I said, Dear God, please forgive me for my socially acceptable sins. And then, I was also impressed with secret sin, a third type of offense to God. And those are the sins that I know about, but nobody else knows about. You know, you can be sitting in a meeting and have a face that looks like you're listening to the presenter, and your mind is where? Far away. And God knows that in our, in our minds, we have the most tightly guarded secrets. The secret sins. And I prayed to the Lord, Dear Lord, cleanse thou me from secret faults. Psalm 19.12 In the Timothy, the uh, uh, conscience is mentioned several times in the first chapter. 1 Timothy 1.5, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. The, end, uh, the goal of uh, God's word is love out of a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling. If we don't have a good conscience, we will swerve from God's path. That is, if our Life is not void of offense toward God. Verse 18, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Without a good conscience, I am in danger of a shipwreck much worse than Paul's. And I invite you to make these same 
commitments. Do you want to have a love, a genuine love in a relationship and in a marriage? Are you willing to make these commitments? Do you want to have a conscience that's void of offense toward God and toward man? Will you bow your heads? If these five commitments, a genuine love for your neighbor as yourself, an awareness of a natural tendency to choose evil associates, and a, a crying out to God for good companions, a selectivity in your books, and a clearing of your conscience by having a conscience void of offense toward God and man. If those are your commitments, would you be willing, with your head bowed, to put your hands up and then down? Lord, you see each commitment. My hand joins. I, I pray that you will clear the consciences. Show us ourselves that we may, we may confess our sins. And show us our Savior who's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is probably someone in this group, dear Jesus, that is discouraged and depressed in thinking that they can never merit the best kind of spouse. Dear Lord, none of us can merit any kind of, of spouse. But we trust in you. Help this person to reach out and take your promises of full acceptance, full love. And now, dear Lord, I pray that you'll bless us in the other sessions. May your Holy Spirit fall. May our time together might, uh, may not be just a, a ritual we go through, but a real time of recommitment, rededication, and fellowship with you. We thank you for hearing and for answering this prayer. For Jesus' presence, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.